Welcome back to Walking Away from Arcadia. This is Victor Kinzer, and I'm here with my host, Simon Eichhornchen. And today, we're going to be taking another slice out of the canon and diving into it as deeply as we can in an hour to an hour and a half. We're going to be talking about David's disappearance and all of the fallout, immediate fallout, of David's disappearance. So this story really spans the Kingdom of Willows, Fool's Luck, and Warren Concordia books. I think it maybe gets touched on in a couple other books that were released during that period, but those are the three books that really have a lot of this story wrapped up in it. It starts with Kingdom of Willows. Basically, the long and the short of what happens is Fairleth and David, High Queen Fairleth and High King David, get married. One of the nuances of this story is Fairleth is High Queen Fairleth because David has appointed her as High Queen to rule as a peer with him. It gets complicated because he is also taken on an heir, Lenore, and uh, probably not thought much of anything about it because really he's just gotten married. He's a high she, and he lives in Freehold, so he's going to live forever, right? So beginning of his rule, no big deal. He and Feralith start a tour of their kingdom. They're going to go to all the little sub-kingdoms, and they start in the Kingdom of Willows. Kingdom of Willows is a location book that also tells the beginning of this story of David's disappearance. Things go terribly, terribly wrong when David and Feralith make it to the Kingdom of Willows. Simon, what happens exactly when they make it to the first stop on their grand tour? They show up at King Melgi's court in the Kingdom of Willows, which is the Atlantic, southeastern, gulfy part of the U.S. in the real world. They have a grand ball, because of course they do. It's Changeling, and they're she. If you read Kingdom of Willows, it is absolutely clear that Melg orchestrated David's disappearance at this ball. He drugs him, then has him spirited out of the palace for his own safety, and a bunch of human, probably criminal thugs show up, beat the crap out of him with iron bars, lock him in a cage made of iron in the back of a van, and ride off into the sunset with him indefinitely propelled by Mielg's money. Back at the palace, Mielg plays it pretty close to what actually happens. He discovers that the king is missing, launches a very earnest-seeming search throughout the palace and eventually the kingdom for him, and everybody buys it. Absolutely everybody buys it, despite Mielg being an Islanded and everybody knowing what Islanded's about. And the Islanded bit is another little piece of complexity here, because High Queen Feralith is Meelg's niece. As with all relationships between changelings, I'm going to put that in scare quotes. What does that mean? Is it only in changeling society? Is she kind of actually his ward? Who knows? But they are close, and they've had a long-term changeling familial relationship for years before... She met David and married him and ascended to the throne. So you have kind of an obvious setup here for, oh, he named her High Queen and then disappeared. It's all a plot to put her in charge, except 
all of the storytelling makes it very clear that Milg does not have Ferelith in on this whole scheme. She doesn't know about it. Now, maybe he's hoping to install her and use her as a puppet, but she really seems to be earnest and honest and really deeply love David. There's some tensions between Milg and Ferelith, and it's clear she's not even particularly happy with him. But the thing is, she is also Islanded. The whole relationship with Ferelith is very interesting because at no point is she depicted as being a typical Islanded, even though her uncle is like the premier cardinal character, perfect representation of everything that Islanded is. She is kind of the super fringe exception Islanded, sort of the way David is the super fringe exception Gwydion. Like, yes, he's a leader in a couple superficial ways. He's very Gwydion. But he also loves the commoners, and he's the most egalitarian she-leader we've had in forever. Like, he is nothing like what's written up in the Book of Houses. And so we have these two, like, cardinal exceptions to what their houses represent in charge, and then contrasted against just like the most islanded islanded that has ever lived. And it makes for some really strange tensions. Uh, there was a little moment that... Simon, you remembered that I didn't remember in as much detail about when Melg and Ferelith are fighting in Kingdom of Willows. After it's clear that David's been disappeared somehow and accusations are going every which way, Melg and Ferelith and some others have a big meeting in the palace to discuss her safety because, of course, suspicion's going to fall on her because she's if not next in line to the throne, very close to the throne. Throughout this entire story, Ferelith has seemed kind of bland, kind of boring, kind of innocuous, and they kind of sidestep that by giving Mild a moment to reflect before all this starts happening, that it was pure luck that Ferelith caught David's eye he just sent her to Terranor to, you know, be introduced to society. He didn't think this was going to happen. Ferelith has a little flashback about how a voice from the Dreaming told her that this was her husband. So they're having this conflict about what to do, and Ferelith has a spine, and she jumps in and she's like, no, I'm co-regent, I'm going to step out, and I'm going to complete the tour that me and my husband were going to do because this is what we were going to do. This is what you do when you are a co-monarch. You do what is responsible, and you just go with it until, you know, of course, somebody is going to find him. He's not going to disappear forever. It's very interesting to me, because there's a side character introduced here, whose name I might not quite have right, but I think it's Igrena, and she steps in here, and she's a member of a secret society that Feralith is also a part of, she just does a bunch of little nudges through this interaction, not even most of them aimed at Feralith or Milgi, that set Feralith up to win this interaction. Feralith comes out of this interaction having, one, established Seif's role going forward, not just as, you know, Milgi's bard, but as the Chosen of Caliburn, who is going to go find David. She ends up with a bodyguard, and she ends up getting to finish her inaugural tour of the kingdom 
despite Milgi wanting to keep her locked in a box somewhere so that his ticket to power stays safe. The theme of Changeling the Dreaming is missed opportunities, because some of this stuff does carry forward a little bit into the other books, and some of it doesn't. The stuff that got left behind is a little sad, because it could have been good. Speaking of missed opportunities, this particular section of the story, I really want to read Feralith's spine as being about the fact that she could have been a real leader, the way David is. I honestly almost like her more as a leader than David. The thing is, she's Islanded, And we know at this point in the line's history that the Islanded were responsible for the Night of Iron Knives. We know, even going back to the Mythic Age, that there were some betrayals and schemes, and are they connected to Ileal? That isn't as developed as it could have been through the Unseelie house book, but it's still there. It's seated. I feel like they could have set up here, and they didn't really do any foreshadowing, and it didn't go anywhere later, but they really could have set up that Fairleth had the possibility of redeeming the Islanded, maybe even holding them accountable for the Night of Iron Knives, and you know they were clearly using this story to recenter the setting of Changeling on things actually happening in Changeling society instead of up until then Changeling had sort of been, I'll say, a bit of a precursor to Chronicles of Darkness in that it's more of just a setting than being as canon as some of the other games were. And this was a shift back to more, you know, like the other games. You know, they could have done some really interesting things where like she's a legitimately full-on seely Ed, but then all these things happen with David, you open up the possibility of stories of grief, of a fall, of tragedy, and tragedy is so much juicier when you were right on the edge of greatness. But I felt like they missed that. Like, that's how I read Feralith. That's how I want her to be, and I want to see her fall, because at the end of the world, I'm a World of Darkness player. That's not a direction they went down. So as with all of these canon episodes possibilities for alternate takes at your table i really think that's a particularly juicy one you know in the ensuing books they go into the battle for the throne and that's another route you could take with Feralith becoming jaded because you know american politics ruins everything and dreaming politics is so much worse than american politics the other really interesting character who gets introduced in this segment is of course Seif, who is up to this point King Milgi's court bard, for some reason. When David is kidnapped, Caliburn abandons him. It just disappears into the dreaming and nobody knows what happens. It's one of those points that never got picked up again as a badge of office and a apparently sentient object. Caliburn leaving David doesn't just mean that like he isn't king at this moment. It means he is not king anymore. So it reappears... In Seif's hands, he has this whole story about how it's chosen him to be its bearer, but not king, and how it's his job to go into the dreaming and figure out what happened to David. I really wish they would have just stepped all the way into the story they set up here, because the story of Seif getting Caliburn and just having no idea why he has it would have been much more interesting because it could have been a story of 
Is he supposed to be the next High King? Is he supposed to be the shepherd of this object? Is he supposed to be going to save David? Instead of being about, you know, a decree from the Dreaming as delivered through this sword, it could have been a story about Seif coming to terms with, you know, what he's supposed to be. Because when we were talking about this beforehand, Victor mentioned, and I, like every other Changeling player, constantly forget, that the issue have a nobility subkith, and you can go from one to the other. It's sort of like the end of your wandering days. You become mired in responsibility. It could have been a really interesting story about Seif as a person going from a court bard who probably travels a little bit to, you know, having to come to terms with actually embracing what it is he's supposed to be. Instead, he's the guy who goes on a quest to find David, which isn't uninteresting. It's not as it's just not as interesting as I would have hoped. I really like the idea that Seath got the sword, and I'm a commoner, so clearly the sword didn't pick me. So okay, I I I need to find David. And he just kind of makes that assumption. Then he goes on this quest, and then he becomes an Oba. That transformation happens, and then he's standing there as a noble, but not a noble of Arcadia. And I'm going to use the older classic term for what Arcadia means here as being about the kith. And the issue have always kind of been inside, kind of outside that, especially the Oba, like, Within the context of Arcadia as we know it, the she are the nobles full stop. As soon as you introduce the Oba as nobles, that very clearly in canon the she do not acknowledge, that changes that. That very much marks them as outsiders. Especially now, in the C20 era, if you wanted to use some of this story, maybe pick a, not a C20 timeline, but some of the stuff that's been developed, we have other kith from Africa Having someone newly emerged as an Oba and then holding Caliburn, that just attacks all the fundamental assumptions of the way Concordian society is built. And if you then had some of those other African myths start to emerge, there could be a whole statement about what does the Dreaming really want? And there are a lot of real-world parallels you could tap there if you wanted to. I think that that has huge potential We'll get into a little later some of the tensions around who really deserves to rule and just kind of the myopic focus on the weird line of succession situation that David set up thinking he wasn't going to be done with his rule anytime soon. Have that myopic focus there and then boom, Seath is suddenly holding Caliburn as a ruler and Caliburn seems to be okay with that. There's so much conflict there and it would be so fascinating. But again, Seif goes down the road of uh, trying to find David, and in the context of the original line, he never does. And so then the focus kind of moves away from him. He's acknowledged as being out there and searching, but really, past Kingdom of Willows, his story, it doesn't end, it just never gets picked up again. And instead, we start to move into a real focus on just the destabilization of Concordia. Simon, what are what are the aspects of that pivot that you find most interesting? So there's kind of a, a double vision thing here for me because there are things I find legitimately good and interesting, and there are things that I find 
incredibly frustrating, and therefore I remember them, so I guess they're interesting. <laughs> Moving out of Kingdom of Willows and into Fool's Luck and War and Concordia, you end up in a situation that's a lot less focused on the story of, you know, what happened in the Kingdom of Willows, what happened with Feralith, what happened with Mielg, what happened with Seif, and you end up with a story that has, like you said, a lot more to do with the disillusion of Concordia, the rise of Discordia, which is an awful name for anything. It's just too clever by half. But you get into the politics of accession, and here they introduce the Three Queen problem, where you have Morwen, Feralith, and Lenore. Mab. Oh, oh, and Mab, yes. I was thinking the three potential rulers, Mab, adds extra complexity there. Yeah. And each of them has, air quotes, a legitimate claim to the throne. I mean, made-up politics in a made-up game, but this is just one of the worst thought-out parts of this, even though it does create drama. (laughs) And I like it for that, but it's just one of those things that's like, okay, you have a co-regent, you have an heir, and you have a regent. I think I know which one has the strongest claim, and I think I know which one has the second strongest claim. How is this a problem? But whatever. Let's just pretend that Concordian politics has nothing to do with, you know, the line of succession in England, for example. So you end up with this situation where you have three political factions that roughly split support among the nobles... And then you have some, like, tertiary factions. The Red Branch Knights show up and ruin their reputation by choosing a side. The Red Branch Knights are played essentially like the Secret Service in the U.S., so I don't even know how they got political power in this situation, but somehow they did. This is the point where I think there would have been more Kingdom books to, like, fill in some of the gaps, because, like, a Kingdom of Apples book here would have been really good, but it never happened. And having a book dedicated to... What's going on in DC at the moment would have been good too, since DC is occasionally referred to as Discordia all by itself. But that never happened. So the main plot ends up focusing on who gets the throne. It suffers a bit, because it's a little abstract again, where Kingdom of Willows was very like, look at what happened here. And everything in the book was very focused on how do you tell this story in a way that involves the players? The subsequent books are much more setting. The one thing about the who has the claim to the throne that's a little bit more concrete is basically Feralith makes a claim that, well, David isn't dead. We haven't found a body. He's still king. He's just missing. And so I am still high queen. The idea that she could get enough clout, enough support from all of Concordia the Parliament of Dreams for as long as it lasts. We'll get into what happens to the Parliament in a bit, but it ends up kind of crumbling because of all of this. That's somewhat believable. Once you get into the tension between all of the other players beyond Feralith, it kind of becomes, well, if we can just declare David dead then the rest of this is going to fall into place and someone will end up on the throne and we'll be done with it. It's that piece of still holding the tension of like, is David dead? And then everyone else thinking, well, maybe I can maneuver so that by the time that's decided, I'll have a chance at the throne. But like, Simon makes a good point. If they had found a body, this would have just resolved itself. There wouldn't be a remaining fight among everyone who wasn't Feralith. And so they create this tension 
and they kind of justify it, but it is, it's a stretch. It is a definite stretch if any real ruling is going on. So I think what they were going for, and maybe they showed a little bit too much without finishing the thought, but I think what they were going for is just, there's this huge political fight and then how does that trickle down to everyone else? Because when you get into Fool's Luck and then War in Concordia, there's also suddenly this emphasis on the commoners. And the commoner factions are never as well defined as the she factions or like, I'm behind Feralith, I'm behind Mab, I'm behind Morwen. And because they're not as well defined, I think people don't remember them. They're these long lists of secret societies where if they'd only had three or four, I think it would have been better. But there is definitely a focus on commoners and the story kind of moves to just what's happening on the street level and how it's impacted by this political fight. But I don't know, Simon, how do you feel about how all that comes together? Oh, I've said it before, and I feel like these three books is kind of where the dreaming plot actually starts. Because... Like, you're right, there are too many secret societies. When you get right down to it, it's at this point in the meta plot where you're finally at a place where, like, Vampire starts from, because you have the Changeling Sabat, you have the Changeling Camarilla, and you have the Changeling, oh god, what's that in the corner over there? Get it away. You just end up with a few too many layers of abstraction, because you have the Seelie, Unseelie, Shadow Court thing, and then you have the secret societies on top of that. Then you have the political thing, then you have the political impulses. But, especially with War and Concordia, you get more, like you said, into like what's going on with the commoners now, and, you know, by extension, what's going on with the nobility, because you get into these stories about parliament dissolving because it's just dysfunctional, and without a strong executive in David... There's nobody to show up with Caliburn and go, hey, do your jobs. Parliament was never going to be functional to begin with because it was set up as an instrument to maintain the Xi's power, even though they're like less than 10% of the population. So Parliament dissolves a couple of times on the way out the door there. You get these stories about what's happening in different areas in Concordia where generally nobles are in charge and they're battening down the hatches for the coming winter or the coming civil war or whatever they think is going to happen. And, you know, necessarily you get these stories about abuse, basically. And then the reaction to abuse, which also tends to be fairly violent. This is the part where I really feel like the Kingdom books would have continued filling in the picture because you get a couple of stories about what Mab's doing and even though she's nominally a good guy she you keep looking at that and going oh but this is what she's doing in her kingdom isn't that too bad <laughs> and there's just a lot of those stories and you know they go on to say that ennobled commoners do the same things but they don't actually like get into detail about it it's perhaps uncomfortable reading in our current moment <laughs> Yeah, and this is actually an area where I can't believe I'm about to defend the hardcore, like, she, one true wayliners from the fandom. But one critique that I have seen about, you know, oh, the she are always set up as villains, and it's it's not reasonable, you know, the commoners do terrible things too, 
but like it's clear in the writing that they do terrible things, but it's never the focus of the story. I actually do kind of agree with that critique. I think that as soon as you open up the ennobling of commoners, you open up stories about characters who are so afraid of losing what they have that they abuse their peers. Or to be a little more radical in my my language, uh, they're class traitors. You know, you open up a story about class traitors. And in a game built on feudalism slash neo-feudalism, how can you not tell those stories and in this moment, like in this moment in the canon, it would have been the perfect time to tell the story about, oh, the Parliament of Dreams has shattered. The guy who said you get to be a noble is gone. His queen is trying to preserve everything he built, but she doesn't really have the power to. What are you going to do with these other she who have risen to power and want you out? Do you like take up arms with your commoner brethren against them now that you don't have power anymore? Or do you delude yourself into thinking, oh no, I'm not part of that class anymore? That tension is set up in War and Concordia, but it's not really ever explicitly invoked. Like, commoners are commoners, and you get commoner traditionalists. Like, there's a write-up on what do commoner traditionalists look like? But it tends to be the standard line about like trolls who moved over to the she initially, and it it's in the kith breakdown. It doesn't really address the what did ennobling commoners do to them culturally. I feel like that's a huge missed opportunity because this is the perfect moment in the canon to tell those stories. Mm -hmm. From a historical perspective, like. The world is full of stories about, you know, the colonizers coming in, picking an out-of-favor group in, you know, whatever land they rolled into, giving them a little bit of power and making them the governors, since they're already hated, and then letting them do the terrible things. It's just all over the place, and it would have been a great place to put a story like that. They didn't. But this is the point in the story where the Oath Taken are introduced, the generally commoners, probably always commoners, who end up being forced into unwieldy oaths of fealty with the promise that, like, they'll at least get a little glamour out of it. As long as, you know, they never, ever do anything to annoy their rulers. I'm going to make another vampire comparison here, but this is the point where, like, in the story, you should look at Sovereign and go, oh, this is actually worse than Dominate, because it is. You know, in a society that's collapsing around them, they're using sovereign, mostly, but oaths too, to force the world to persist in a certain configuration that benefits them. And isn't that the entire story of the world of darkness? This is the point where Changeling suddenly fits into the world of darkness. Maybe for the first time. And there are a lot of really great stories about the abuse of sovereign in this period some of my favorite stuff that really makes you realize how awful sovereign is i thought about how this relates to this point in the story and then i thought about some of the other games and some of the powers that are thought of as very overpowered like the mind sphere oh you can do anything with the mind sphere you can do with the other powers and you could do even more but like i went back and looked at that and especially in the M20 era, 
but honestly, even in Revised, you have the first few levels of mind that give you your control other people abilities, and then you get into like crazy weird esoteric things like building new minds. Which, okay, Sovereign never gets there, but when you compare the dice dynamics, just the amount of leverage you have over another human being with the mind systems, to 5th level Sovereign, there's no comparison. And with 5th level Sovereign, it isn't even that you control their mind. They get to keep who they are. You don't even give them the mercy of conversion. It's just, do this, or you will be just shy of completely and totally unmade, and I will take away everything from you that makes your existence worth having and you know the examples in the canon don't quite go to the full abuse of of gaze but they get really really brutal and when you look at the dice dynamics and the actual systems and how much power a sovereign user has over other people and then think about a war of politics you can really take it to some pretty awful extremes and be solidly within what the canon implies. And this is the stretch of the game where all of that stuff lives. They never got to it, but I always loved the idea that, you know, through flagrant abuse of Goss and of oaths, that the population of changelings, maybe Kinane too, maybe not, who just end up becoming horrific monsters because that's all that's left to them at this point it's the only way they can hold on to their enchantment that would have been a wonderful unforeseen consequence just like having the thalane and the dantane and the autumn people numbers swell because the sheep primarily but probably also some commoners who were ennobled abused their ability to mind control people so much just filling the dreaming with all of these oath breakers. Mwah. Yeah, there's that. And then there's also the interesting tension that's created by the two court system. The fact that all Fae have both courts inside of them with the traditionalist anarchist divide and the kind of really horrible reshaping power that she would have over traditionalists. Because you could take really a traditionalist who, aside from that, was a really good person. And for those of you out there that like the she, you can, you know, rank me over the coals for saying aside from that. But they start making them do horrible things with Sovereign, and the connection of, like, I have this belief in the she, I have been forced to do these terrible things by the she I believe in, and they have to reconcile that, and that reconciliation is what turns them into a monster— as opposed to a captured anarchist or, you know, less intense radical, just anti-monarchist, where they may be forced to do terrible things by Sovereign, but they won't take that into their fey identity. They might become bitter, they might become angry, but they will understand that they were wronged and that they could reconcile that that wasn't who they were. You know, there's a lot of real-world abuse dynamics to tap there if you're at a table with people who are comfortable telling those stories. Again, this is the right time to have just waves of that kind of tension and using court flipping and maybe even slipping out of legacies into less desirable legacies and being pushed farther and farther away from who you are in the name of not becoming oath-broken. 
it's just there's a lot of really complicated messy stuff that can happen in a war and a war story you know the emergence of the conflict again the return of the accordance war in a new form now that things are unstable i want a whole book exploring that but i don't know that i'll ever get that so we move into changeling the milgram experiment here you know even coming away from that a little bit so you've got these three books you've got kingdom of willows fool's luck and war and concordia setting this all up and then the batter just walks right off the field because the soft cancel happens and just like finishes it off so we'll never really know what was supposed to happen here but a couple of characters get introduced through the course of these books that clearly had something to do later on and they never quite got to it there's a signature character in Warren Concordia, Niall, who is a drunk, mostly banality destroyed she who shows up in New York not knowing who he is, but it is implied he has something to do with the Ascension conflict. And then there's also another she, because of course it's a she, a Gwydion who comes back from Arcadia, just pops up in Central Park somewhere. And has a very important message for the High King, who doesn't exist anymore, so he must be important somehow. I know which of those two characters I prefer to have more story about, but obviously they were both going to go somewhere. We never found out. I would be really curious to see if they were going to invoke this story at all in... The books that got written but never released. Because I know they had Keys to the Kingdom, which was going to be their Year of the Lotus book for Changeling. And it was written. It wasn't fully developed and edited when it was axed. But I've talked with one of the writers from it, and it had a first draft. Like, it had a complete first draft, at least. I can't help but wonder if they were going to start to go into how has this instability impacted other parts of the world? I don't know for certain. They might have just kept the Year of the Lotus book to what is it like being a changeling in the Middle East, in Egypt, which of all the books to not necessarily get released, I have doubts about that one. There was also going to be a book of glamour that I don't know if it was finished, but I know it had been started. And I think the book of glamour was going to be a little bit more just crunch and systems, but there's no way to know. Because this wasn't a, here's your final book, wrap everything up the way Ends of Empire was for Wraith. There were other books in the pipe, and the cancellation came as a surprise. There wasn't really advance notice. So, yeah, there are definitely some dangling threads here that you can play around with. And even just looking at what were the books that were greenlit and then canceled does let the imagination run a little bit with what they might have done with that. And then they did say a little bit in this period about what's going on in the rest of the world. It was a little bit more of a, what does the rest of the world think about America? I mean, Concordia descending into insurrection and chaos, but it's there. And I know you have some thoughts about that, so maybe you should be the one to share. I mean, this is the section of the canon that introduces the Galatian Confederation. You know, we get our first real look at Europe. Some books in first edition touched on Europe, but they never really built much of a political structure. It was much more, here's the mythic background, you know, okay, France is full of skaha. But like, they didn't build canon in those books so much. They really did in 
mostly fool's luck, but they extended some of it in Warren Concordia. The one area of that I find really interesting is the Galatian Confederation, which is a swath of Europe, I would say largely the eastern portion of Western Europe, a little bit of actual what we think of as Eastern Europe as well, that was commoner ruled. There were certainly she allowed there, but the she had to understand their place as just peers with the commoners. They did not get to rule. And largely the she avoided the Galatian Confederation. They didn't want to have anything to do with it. So they were awfully rare there. And it's set up as one of the equivalents to the Accordance War in the history section of what happened in Europe, and it resulted in this confederation. They're kind of mentioned briefly in terms of having opinions about the conflict that's happening. But for me, I think it would be really interesting if sort of almost in like the CIA promoting insurgents elsewhere, if they had set up the Galatian Confederation as supporting commoner insurgent activity in Concordia, because that would make sense. Changelings are always interested in extending their own dream. And so the idea of the Galatian Confederation seeing an opportunity to cover more of the world with the kind of rule that they drew strength from to expand their personal resonant portion of the dreaming, I think there's a really, really good set of stories there that I would both love to tell and would love to see books, plural, written about. And I can't help but be very aware of the fact that this whole story, this part of the canon, Warren Concordia, kind of resonates more with the last four years that we've lived through than it does with the end of the 90s when it was released. Some of the implications of taking the story and moving it into a more contemporary setting are a little unsettling depending on your politics, because it frames some people that in the 90s you might have been allied with in a different light. But there's something to be said for those stories being worth telling. I also think that resonance just makes it easier to tap. You can just start telling this story at a table and people are going to draw connections because we resonate with things that relate to our lived experience. And I think that Galatian Confederation tie-in has some potential. Yeah, I just, I find it very interesting that they introduced these European dynamics in the middle of this story, in the middle of the fallout part of the story. So this is in Fool's Luck and Warren Concordia, once we're kind of past the main setup with the she, and we're into the part that's focusing on the commoners. And so introducing it here, you then immediately think, is this Chekhov's gun? Where did they intend for this like weapon to be used, this story dynamic to have its impact? They never really got there. It's just this really interesting thing that's there, and I think finishing that thought could be a really engaging experience at someone's table. There's one other thing here that I thought was interesting on this read-through that I don't think I picked up the first several times. And I think it was in Kingdom of Willows, but my assumption like all the way through the Dreaming canon has always been that David is supposed to be Kennedy because you know he's got the whole Camelot thing going on and there's the whole house on the hill thing that's always been a part of the American mythos but like it really comes to the fore there during the Kennedy period in pretty sure it's Kingdom of Willows the comparison shifts really dramatically David isn't compared to 
Kennedy quite so obliquely, and it's more Lincoln. That sets up a slightly different conflict for the following books than the one I always kind of read there. It's not the Cold War U.S. anymore. It's the Civil War U.S., and as bad a job as Dreaming does dealing with that part of American history, Kingdom of Willows does a better job than I think the rest of Dreaming, acknowledging that the Civil War had to do with chattel slavery, and that while there were economic concerns, they all kind of revolved around slavery. Getting a little bit back in the conversation to the role of sovereign and oaths, that resonates in a way that it didn't before the first couple of times I read these books. If you're going to be using these three books as like a launching point for your game, it's worth thinking about what the coming conflict looks most like, if it looks like anything that happened before. Because the changeling history of the Civil War is pretty not great. But this is a chance for a do-over if you want to take that angle. Yeah, it is a pretty good chance for a do-over. The other thing that that makes me think about, so they reframed David a bit in Kingdom of Willows, but they also reframed him pretty heavily in War in Concordia. There was a sidebar, and then I think it gets mentioned on two or three other pages, saying everybody thought David was the equivalent of King Arthur. I mean, he has the sword. That's the symbol. Caliburn is another name for Excalibur. And they just come out and say, yeah, that was a misinterpretation. Really, he's Uther Pendragon. He is the king that will come before the great king. After all of the Camelot symbolism that they just like force through the rest of the games, suddenly having them about face on the last book in the line and say, that's all bullshit, the dreaming was fucking with you, is an interesting take. I don't know that David actually mirrors Pendragon very well, but taken as a, a more blunt force tale about something else is coming, it is an interesting place to end the line. Or to just leave things hanging for a while for you to make a decision. To me, it felt a bit like an end time setup. And I'm kind of over actually seeing through eschatological stories in World of Darkness. I'm here for eschatology should always be there in the background because everyone is always afraid of their Aeon ending. Always. And I much prefer that ever hanging unfulfilled anxiety to we're actually going to do an end time story. Like I got that out of my out of my system a few years ago. But thinking about where the line was when they wrote that and what you could do with that now and what that means is really interesting. It's a, a thread I wish they had picked up in the more recent lines when they chose what to extend. But as of right now, it's just kind of a hanging plot thread. And first reframing David's human equivalent in what he represents to the human dream, and then a couple books later, reframing his dreaming equivalent in the myth he's actually connected to. There's a lot to play with there. It's heady and high level, and it might, you know, be a bit challenging to just like make it visible to your players, but I do think it's a really engaging dynamic. It's kind of funny. The David as Arthur thing always kind of bugged me because of Caliburn. The name Excalibur 
means out of Caliburn, because it's Caliburn Reforged. And there was always a thing there that was just like, why? Why Caliburn? <laughs> and then, like, here's where it makes sense. Like, somebody knew that. It's just they never told anybody else. Well, and just knowing how game books get written, I can't help but wonder if the person that used Caliburn originally didn't necessarily know that. They just didn't want to just straight up say Excalibur. But the person who wrote the, no, really, he's Uther, not Arthur, at the end got that and decided to do something with it because that sort of thing happens with game book writers all the time it's also interesting that david disappears after taking a queen it's not part of the king arthur mythos but the summer king is a thing the sacrifice of the king at the end of the summer season for the kingdom to be reborn in the spring is a thing mythologically and they never really did that except for this one point so I, I don't think it was what they were aiming at, but it would have been nice. It would have. It also would have been a really interesting thing, you know, going back to what we said about there are too many secret societies. If there had been maybe five secret societies total and have them each be really, really well developed instead of a dozen or more getting a couple paragraphs each and have one of them built around that myth. Like they saw David disappear and they went, oh, this is what's happening. We have to prepare the way and make it really eschatological. Again, like eschatology is built into the world of darkness. I don't want that to go away, but it doesn't mean we need to finish that story ever. This would be a really good place for, it didn't get picked up till it happened. It's self-fulfilling. But look at this little cult over here and give them a really meaningful place in the canon. And that could have been a great mythological invocation. All right. We want to thank you for joining us for another one of our Metaplot discussion episodes for Changing the Dreaming. This is going to take us out of, let's call it the classic era of dreaming. And in the next one, we'll be talking about what's happened since they started publishing new books. And we hope you'll join us for that.